So imagine you have a lot of cats, and the cats are all high on cocaine, and there's laser pointers everywhere. No, <laughs> it's um, it's really interesting. You know, in corporate projects, the project manager or program manager doesn't necessarily have control, but there's you know some like clear lines of authority, and can really push things in a general direction. In an open source community, you know, people have a lot of autonomy. They don't have a manager that you can go talk to when they're, you know, not doing what they're supposed to. They don't need a paycheck from you because they're volunteering. So, you know, they're paying you and they could just walk away at any point if they don't like what's going on. And so, you know, it's really more of trying to coalesce what's already going on and kind of giving shape to the general consensus of the community. So much of my job is just communicating and lurking in all these different channels. I'm on 50 different mailing lists, probably. Um, I'm in chat channels all the time. It's just a fire hose of information. And I try and do my best to like pick out the things that are interesting and important and make sure that gets shared more broadly with the community. Uh, you know, it's really, you know, my job is 90% about communicating things. Um, whether it's the schedule, whether it's, you know, blocker status, whether it's what meetings are coming up or, you know, open calls for participation, things like that. With me on the show today is Ben Cotton. Ben is the Fedora Program Manager at Red Hat. Ben, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. So before we get to what you do now, wanted to get kind of some background information of how you ended up where you ended up today. So let's start from when you were younger. Uh, was technology always something that you were interested in? I, I wouldn't say necessarily. My uncle gave us our first computer. It was an Epson Equity LT laptop. I believe it was a 10 megahertz processor with a switch that could go down to 4.4 if 10 was just way too much for your uh, for your programs to handle. And so, you know, it was kind of cool to sit there and like, you know, play games on it. I, I learned a lot about breaking computers doing that, which, you know, did teach me a little bit about how to fix them as well. Um, but then he taught me how to program in uh, BASIC. And so we'd sit there and we'd write uh, little programs like, Enter your weight, and it tells you what how much you weigh on different planets. So the same with your age, or you know, calculate your age in dog years. You know, just kind of real simple stuff. I was like, this is kind of neat. Um, so I started, you know, I went into QBasic and like made silly changes to uh, gorillas to you know see how I can change that, and mostly it um, just broke. But uh, you know, I didn't really get super into technology really until I was in college. So I was a meteorology major in college, actually, uh, in my freshman year. Where did you go? Purdue. Okay. So my freshman year, a professor was giving us a tour of the department and he happened to mention, oh, you know, next week I'm going to be doing a training class uh, on some of our weather software if anyone's interested. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested. I'll go to that. So, you know, I go there in a little computer lab and it was you know, these machines running FreeBSD 4 or something like that. But we learned mostly through command line tools how to make weather charts. And I was like, this is awesome. And at the end of the class, he mentioned, you know, I'm a visiting professor. My appointment's up at the end of the year. I don't know who's going to be running this next year. So I go back to my dorm room 
And in like complete overconfidence mode, I sent him an email that I'm pretty sure literally said, I'm just a freshman who doesn't know what he's doing, but I'll do it. Um, so the department hired me on, you know, minimum wage to maintain our weather data software. Um, and so that was really my first exposure to Unix. And then, um, you know, I was getting frustrated with Windows 2000 on my computer. And so a friend of mine brought over this Red Hat Linux 8 thing that he, you know, had. And so I dabbled in Linux here and there for a while. But it wasn't until uh, after I graduated that the department was like, hey, we're going to be hiring a systems administrator. Do you want the job? And, you know, it paid about twice as much as an entry level job at the National Weather Service. And there were no midnight shifts. So I said, hey, you know, weather's a great hobby. Um, and so I just sort of fell backwards into, you know, into tech. But I was a you know desktop and uh, server administrator in the department for a few years. You know, kind of learned my way around primarily Red Hat Enterprise Linux at that point with a few Solaris machines here and there. So I started running Fedora at home just to sort of give myself some practice. Um, and then, you know, after that, I kind of got too big for the department. You know, I'd kind of outgrown what I could learn there. And so I moved into the research computing group on campus running our uh, high performance computing infrastructure. Uh, so I did that for a few years kind of got tired of that, um, became technical. My title was research programmer, although I didn't really do programming. It was sort of a way to shoehorn me into some project management and release management stuff. Did that for about a year and then kind of got to the point where it just wasn't that interesting. Like I could make it look like I was doing a lot of work, but I actually wasn't. And I was just kind of bored. And a friend of mine said, hey, I needed somebody to take over the support engineering team at my company. You want to join us? And I was like, okay. So I sold out to the private sector, led that team for a few years, doubled it when I hired somebody so that it was a team of two. Uh, and then after a while, I was getting tired of the pager life. Uh, so our VP of marketing was like, hey, you can like talk human and also know the technology you want to help me with marketing. I was like, all right, cool. So I got into that, um, did that for about a year. We were acquired by Microsoft. Um, so I ended up doing product marketing for high performance computing on Azure there for about 10 months. The job wasn't a great fit for my skills and ability, and it was really under-resourced for what we were trying to do. So I was getting pretty burnt out, and the Fedora program manager position was open. And, you know, I'd been contributing to the Fedora community in various ways for about a decade at that point. And I was like, okay. You know, along the way, I'd picked up a master's degree in project management. And so I managed to get myself hired, and I've been here almost four years now. It's interesting. It's a very I, long answer to your question. Oh, no, it's, it's great. I actually, it's funny, though, because there's a lot of friends that I have who now work in development and, you know, various things that are tangential to development that all got into it because they went to university to learn something else. And then while at university, they, they either, you know, took up a job doing the, the sysadmins type stuff, or they ended up doing more of just the programming stuff for their degree work than they actually we're doing more degree work. And they're like, actually, I like this programming thing better. So I'm just going to double down on this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't mean this, any disrespect to people who have gone through computer science or related programs, but a lot of the best technologists I know have come from those other backgrounds. And I think it's in part because they have that user experience, like they know what the technology is trying to accomplish. And it's not just, you know, the technology for the sake of technology. Yeah, they have that practical knowledge of real world use cases and not just kind of the right. academic, 
oh yeah, this is how it all works in my head and everything makes sense. Because, you know, <laughs> reality and theory sometimes, well, a lot of the times don't quite line up the way we want. So when you started doing stuff with the university, they were doing using FreeBSD. And then you mentioned that you started using Red Hat Linux 8 yourself. Was it just by chance that you started using Red Hat instead of also using FreeBSD on your personal? Yeah. Um, you know, at that point, I wasn't really doing any like server administration. It was all you know, what you might consider application administration. Um, so I had some basic knowledge of being a user on a Unix system, but not really any knowledge of how to run it. Um, and, you know, a friend of mine was a computer science major. He was a, one of my storm chasing friends too. And so he introduced me to Linux and I was like, okay, well, he's here to help answer my questions. Um, you know, the, the sysadmin at the time who was running the BSD systems was not the most approachable person, um, you know, sort of the, the stereotypical bastard operator from hell. So I was like, all right, well, here's somebody that I know that can help me. And, you know, it was easy to find Linux for dummies books, uh, a little harder to find free BSD for dummies, that kind of stuff. So that's sort of how I ended up in Linux. And then by the time I graduated, there had been some change in the IT staff in the department and they had rolled out RHEL anyway. So it turned out to be pretty beneficial for me. I assume that all the HPC stuff happened on RHEL. Pretty much. Um, I think we had a few, you know, sort of one-off things. Some of the back-end infrastructure was Debian or Ubuntu. But, you know, at the time, I think the university had like a site license or something. Um, so it was, you know, very, it was basically free for, to keep, just run as much RHEL as you want. I don't know what they're actually using now. I don't know if they're still on RHEL or not, but it's been a few years since I've been there. So, so having used FreeBSD and Linux just as the user side, you obviously came became aware of kind of the open source thing, but when do you think you really kind of grokked the, oh, like the fuller picture of what open source is, what it means, what it allows, what it enables? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I have an answer to it. Um, I don't think I had an aha moment. I think it was just something that sort of built over time. Um, you know, the reason I got involved in the Fedora community at all was I felt this sense of obligation, you know, like, look at all this cool stuff I'm getting for free. I should give back somehow. Um, you know, I also wanted to pad my resume a little bit by, you know, I knew enough about open source at that point to know that, you know, contributing to a project could be a good way to increase my marketability. But, you know, it was really like, all right, what can I do to give back? And at the time, I had sysadmin skills, obviously, but, you know, kind of looked around Fedora infrastructure. And I was like, whoa, this is way beyond what I've done. Um, you know, I was not then and I'm still not what I would consider a programmer. So I was like, okay, documentation, that's a thing I can do. And so that's how I got started, um, you know, contributing to the docs team. Yeah, we can always use more documentation. Every open source project yes. can use more documentation. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned is if you're willing to write documentation, someone is willing to let you do it. Yeah. So were there any individual or are there any individuals that come to mind that sort of helped mold your perspective and your appreciation of open source? There are really too many to name, but um, you know, Jared Smith is a name that often comes to mind. He was one of the early people on the docs team who helped me. You know, he kind of helped teach me the tool chain and how to use DocBook XML um, I definitely bit off more than I could chew when I said I'd, you know, 
revitalize the RPM guide, which had kind of languished for a while. And that turned out to be way more than I could actually take on. But, you know, he was willing to, you know, give me that that help to try and get started. And he's still around the community. Uh, Paul Frields was another one. He was really helpful to me in the beginning. They've both had long experience in being sort of senior in the Fedora project. And so, you know, it's kind of cool to that you have these experienced like Fedora project leaders coming in to help people and like, oh, you're a new person. You know, there's not this sense of like, well, I'm important. It's like, no, I'll jump in and help. And then also, you know, I have to mention the late John McDonough. Um, we lost him in 2020, uh, but he was the the owner of the technical notes and the release notes for a long time. And, um, you know, he was... He may have been retired by the time I met him, and but he just he was one of those people that was always present, um, you know, always willing to help and always willing to tell you, you know, when you were doing something wrong, but is you know super supportive. Um, and I've just you know, there's been so many people in the community that are like that that you know even now, you know, I'm always finding people in Fedora that are helping me do a better job. A lot of people understand kind of the role of a project manager or a program manager in kind of the corporate software development ecosystem where, you know, you're selling products or you're selling software. What does that look like on an open source free operating system side of things? So imagine you have a lot of cats and the cats are all high on cocaine and there's laser pointers everywhere. No, <laughs> it's... um. It's really interesting. You know, in corporate projects, the project manager or program manager doesn't necessarily have control, but there's, you know, some like clear lines of authority and can really push things in a general direction. In an open source community, you know, people have a lot of autonomy. They don't have a manager that you can go talk to and they're, you know, not doing what they're supposed to. They don't need a paycheck from you because they're volunteering. So you know, they're paying you and they could just walk away at any point if they don't like what's going on. And so, you know, it's really more of trying to coalesce what's already going on and kind of giving shape to the general consensus of the community. So much of my job is just communicating and lurking in all these different channels. I'm on 50 different mailing lists, probably. Um, I'm in chat channels all the time. It's just a fire hose of information. And I try and do my best to like, pick out the things that are interesting and important and make sure that gets shared more broadly with the community. Uh, you know, it's really, you know, my job is 90% about communicating things, um, whether it's the schedule, whether it's, you know, blocker status, whether it's what meetings are coming up or, you know, open calls for participation, things like that. Yeah. So in companies that I've worked for before that have developed software, I've, I've always noticed that kind of the PMs are kind of setting the direction, so to speak, of where the ship is sailing. And then they're kind of passing that along to the individual development managers to then go to their teams and make all the stuff happen. But in contrast, like on the Fedora development mailing list, I see you coming in with a, with a post and you're just asking the questions of, hey, how does everybody feel about doing this? And you're actually letting the community decide instead of just kind of a small group of people going, okay, this is where things are going. It's really opened up for everyone. Yeah. And that's one thing that, you know, people who come from you know, more of a corporate background sometimes have a hard time understanding or being comfortable with is 
there are very few things in my day to day that are really under my control. And, you know, so much of it is that, that open public communication, um, you know, despite some people's, you know, conspiracy theories, Red Hat does not just sit there and dictate things to Fedora and make everyone fall in line. Um, you know, the project would not have lasted this long if that's how it worked. And, you know, even sometimes Fedora does things that Red Hat really wishes we wouldn't, but, you know, the community goes in a direction and that's the direction we go. And so, you know, my job is really to make sure we're well coordinated with, with each other in order to go in what, what direction the community decides. So when there are those things that, you know, someone will send in a, a change proposal um, and they'll be like, hey, I think the next version of Fedora should have this feature, or should do this or shouldn't do this. Do you kind of, does your position also kind of have an aspect of kind of like HR management of when there are those heated dis disagreements on the technology and the direction of it? Or does that get handed over to Fesco or another group? So handling that kind of stuff is kind of a joint effort, um, you know, just by nature of my position and my visibility in the community. You know, I try and step in and, you know, lower the temperature in conversations when, it's pop, when we can. Um, a lot of times it'll just be, you know, especially if there's somebody who I've known for a long time through Fedora and I see a message that is just way sort of outside of the normal bounds of what they say, I'll just reach out to them privately and be like, hey, this came across pretty, eh, are you okay? And usually it's like, you know, just, yeah, I got frustrated and, you know, was human or whatever. But, you know, we we try really hard not to use the code of conduct as, you know, like it's a last resort. Um, you know, Fedora takes our code of conduct seriously and it's a, it's an important part of making sure that we have a, a welcoming and inclusive community. But we don't want it to be punitive. Like we want to address things before they rise to the level of a code of conduct issue. Um, and by and large, you know, we're usually pretty good at sort of as a community self-moderating. Um, you know, there are people who have had to be put in timeout sometimes. But, you know, by and large, if somebody sees something, somebody misbehaving in the community, we want everyone to feel like they can stand up and say, Hey, that's not how we do it here. Okay. So I, since I brought up Fesco, uh, people who are listening to this show may not be as familiar with Fedora as I am. So can you kind of describe what Fesco is and what their role inside Fedora is? Sure. So let me start out by talking about the Fedora council. Okay. So that's the high level governing body. Um, it's really sort of setting the strategic, um, you know, project-wide kind of issues. So council um, handles things like trademark. Um, so, you know, we can, we decide who's allowed to use the Fedora mark, for example, to make swag. You know, we set the guidelines for people to use it in the community. And so, you know, there's not a lot of day-to-day decision-making in the Fedora council. It's really supposed to be more of a strategic body. And that's made up of people who are in their roles, um, you know, by virtue of being in a job. So I'm on the Fedora Council because I'm the program manager and I have what's called an auxiliary seat. So my vote only counts sometimes. Um, but like the Fedora project leader and the community action and impact coordinator um, are both hired by Red Hat to be in those roles. And they are full-time members of the council. Um, 
And we also have elected members and then people who are selected by groups within the community to represent their group. Um, so one of those groups is the Fedora Engineering Steering Committee, or FESCO. Um, FESCO is entirely in, elected by the community. Um, they serve one-year terms. And their job is really steering the engineering uh, aspects. So, you know, they don't necessarily set priorities and stuff in terms of, you know, all right, well, you go do this and you go do that. Um, you know, a lot of it is sort of reactive approvals. So when you do it, somebody submits a change proposal, after the community provides input, it goes to FESCO and FESCO votes on whether or not it gets included in a release. Um, they also handle things like uh, requests for proven packager status and, you know, certain other technical things like that. And then we also have the Fedora Mindshare Committee, which is sort of a FESCO equivalent for the non-engineering sides of the community. So that's design and websites and documentation, um, community outreach, all these things. Uh, and then we also have a diversity and inclusion, um, or I think they've re recently renamed diversity, equity, and inclusion team, uh, which also reports directly to the council. Um, and their role is, you know, they run the Fedora Week of Diversity and other events like that, and also, um, you know, help provide some input to the community on how to be you know, more diverse and inclusive. Um, you may have noticed that open source communities in general are not reflective of the general population. And that's one thing that, you know, our vision as the Fedora project is that, you know, computing is accessible to and contributable to by everyone. We know that we are nowhere near that goal yet. It's definitely very aspirational, but it's something that we're actively trying to work towards. So I know Fedora does a lot of outreach programs. Is that fall under Fesco? Does that fall under Mindshare? Does that, where does that kind of fall under? Um, so most of that goes under Mindshare. So we do participate in Google Summer of Code usually, uh, as well as Outreachy. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of you know, sort of ad hoc efforts, um, you know, when people go to conferences and have a Fedora booth or something, uh, Mindshare is the, you know, provides the funding for things like that. Yeah, so I've used Fedora for a long time. I've been an active community member for a while. In the past couple of years, gotten more active with actually contributing back. And it's actually quite incredible how big the Fedora organizational tree actually is. Yeah. Like it, it just, like you look at it, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And it's, it's really impressive when you don't realize how many different teams there are that are all working on their own little pieces. I can imagine that kind of trying to keep track of all of them can be somewhat of a challenge. It, it really is. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to do is make it so that there's not a lot of barriers to standing up a team to do whatever, you know, you don't have to go through this big formal process. Basically like I want to start a team to, you know, maintain go packages or something. All right, well, there you go. But that also means that teams sort of can fizzle out without anyone noticing for a while. In a lot of ways, Fedora is not a community. It's a large collection of semi-autonomous, mostly related communities. For the most part, each team in Fedora has the ability to run itself how they see fit, you know, within the bounds of our code of conduct and you know, preferably using, you know, common tools and things like that just for simplicity's sake. But, um, you know, people will start and stop teams all the time. And so it is a really very dynamic organization. Yeah, it's definitely kind of weird when you run into that and you're not expecting it. You know, personally, I've run into that with Fedora. 
where, you know, I'll, I'll be speaking with Matthew about something. And I'll be like, hey, you know, it'd be great is if, you know, th this would happen, whatever. It doesn't matter particularly, but just an idea or a concept. And he'll be like, okay, that sounds great. And then it's like, well, okay, like, how, how should I go about doing that? He's like, I, I don't know, just, just go do it. Um, it's like, yeah. well, like, do you want to give me any direction? No, 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 just, just, do what you, just do what you think. And then, you know, once, once you start doing stuff, we'll, we'll give you some input of, oh, yeah, that's looking good. Or uh, how about you do you know, things a little this way? But, yeah, like, you don't, you don't need approval. You don't need a committee to, uh, you know, agree and assign and vote on every little thing to be done, which is, it's, it's shocking and it's refreshing and it's also kind of terrifying at the same time. Because as you said, you know, yes. things can just kind of fizzle out and disappear. And then it's like, oh, hold on, like this thing used to really exist and there used to be a lot of people and there used to be a lot of activity. And now I'm trying to reach that team and there's there's nothing there. It's a ghost town. And it's like, um, okay, well, where, where did everybody go? And of course, yeah. it being open source, you know, people have lives. So like they get busy, priorities change. So it's just interesting to to see those kind of things happen in such a big community. Yeah, you know, I... I've given a lightning talk a few times. I've sort of over the years developed what I call the flywheel theory of community engagement. And it's basically, you know, you have people on a team who are volunteering their time and life happens. So sometimes they contribute a lot and sometimes they contribute a little, but you have a good sized team and those things all sort of average out. And then every once in a while, just out of, you know, sheer chance, everyone kind of drops off at about the same time and then all of a sudden it, you get that ghost town and then people new people try to come in they introduce themselves and nobody answers and they're like okay and so they go off um you know so one of the things that i've seen is that you know teams in fedora that have somebody you know generally it, it's worked out that it's somebody at red hat who's either doing it as part of their job or who just has the institutional backing to be participating in, in the project over a long period of time. Um, those are the teams that are really sort of maintain themselves over many years because they're a little insulated from that effect. So you have this sort of, you know, person's the flywheel, they're, you know, they're conserving the momentum and there's, you know, even if a lot, there's not a lot of work being done, there's at least somebody there to, you know, say welcome when somebody introduces themselves or, you know, just kind of make sure the meetings are still running and you know, things like that. Um, and that it takes a community to make a community a long time, a lot of times. Um, and so, you know, having somebody there to keep the ball rolling, even when people are sort of, you know, getting distracted by life um, makes a big difference. So on the, the kind of the Fedora, the Red Hat blending, because I know for myself, even though I knew Fedora was, you know, a community project, there was still kind of this I don't know, in, in understanding that came out of, you know, the ether that no one ever told me that, well, by and large, it's mostly just Red Hat. But yet there aren't many Red Hatters that are actually employed specifically for Fedora. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and sometimes people ask me how many people at Red Hat work on Fedora. And I say, I have no idea. The number of people who are actually like the bulk of their day-to-day -day job that Red Hat gives them a paycheck for in Fedora is pretty small. Um you know, I'm not going to hazard a guess, but, you know, you could fit them on a, a school bus pretty comfortably, I would say. Um, and then, but you also have a lot of people who, you know, either participate in Fedora a little bit because maybe their main job is maintaining a package or, you know, developing something for RHEL. And so by necessity, they're also working in Fedora as the upstream. Um, or they work at Red Hat and they're 
participating in something that they're really interested in, but it's not actually their day job. They just happen to be Red Hat employees. And, you know, part of that is that there is a bit of a Fedora to Red Hat employee pipeline that, um, you know, there's certainly no guarantee that if you contribute to Fedora, you'll get a job at Red Hat. But that turns out to be uh, a really um, powerful resume boost, um, especially, you know, in roles where you would be, under, you know, working in the Fedora community anyway. Like, oh, we don't have to teach you any of this stuff. That's great. Right. We can already see you know how to do the job and you do it well. Yeah. Right. I can understand how the development is probably more of a gray area because, you know, if somebody is working on, you know, one of the main core utilities, like if somebody's working on System D working for Red Hat, well, obviously that's going to help Fedora just because it's upstream of Fedora. So any of those ups, mm -hmm. up, upstream packages or software obviously affects both. So... Can you kind of give me a, a rough overview of like the life of a Fedora program manager through a Fedora release cycle? Because I'm sure that okay. that, that cycle kind of repeats itself and, and you go through those phases, but ultimately it's kind of the same group of tasks in every cycle. Sure. We do a release every six months. They're supported for about 13 months. So there are definitely some like peaks and valleys in, in my work. Um, you know, things really sort of start, um, you know, before the previous release, um, when people start submitting change proposals. And so, you know, I start, you know, working on those, um, sort of shepherding them through the process and that really ramps up. We have proposal deadlines, you know, in advance of like doing a mass rebuild and then branching the packages from our rawhide development stream, just like anything else. Once the deadline approaches, that's when people are like, oh, I should do this. Um, you know, so that's, that's when it gets really busy and then we get a little bit of a lull and then after branch day is when, you know, things start picking up quite a bit. Um, you know, that's when we start, that's at least when I start paying attention to the, the blocker bugs. And so I'll start sending, um, weekly blocker emails, um, just, Hey, here are the blockers. Here's what action needs to be taken. You know, Adam Williamson is our QA lead. He used to do that. And he's super smart. And so he'd like be sitting there doing it and like, he'd start digging into the bugs. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to try and solve it. I'll, I'm just going to sit here and report, you know, summarize what's in the bugzilla, add a few links to supporting information if I need to, but I'm not going to sit there and figure it out. So I get, I get it done a little faster than Adam usually did. Uh, and that, you know, frees him up to, you know, do the actual QA work instead of just reporting on status. Um, but you know, that's when we start especially like get into like we have a beta freeze and so that's when you know it's like all right start checking in on change proposals are they you know sufficiently done to the point where we can keep them in or do we need to defer them to the next release uh, you know checking in on bugs and following up seeing if it needs to be reported upstream or if upstream is aware of it do they know it's a blocker um, you know do certain things need extra testing you know, just sort of all that coordination pieces. And that really sort of carries through the beta release and into the final release. And then right after the final release is out, um, we, ha we do our elections. And so part of my job is to you know, handle the nomination and uh, interview and voting process for those during the election cycle is also when we start doing the, the massive end of life closure for any bugs that weren't fixed in the release that's going end of life. And, um, you know, that always sparks so much joy in people because they, you know, rightfully get upset that their bug is closed and it's not going to get fixed. 
but it's also it's, it's a reality of large software projects so that that's going to happen and you know personally i think it's better to say this release is end of life if you can reproduce it on a new one sure let's reopen it but otherwise let's be honest you know probably not going to get fixed so yeah i've seen a lot of a lot of times when that's happened where you file a bug about something and then of course the next release comes out and in a lot of tickets that i've been in you'll get you know somebody who's monitoring the ticket to be like hey have you tested this in the new version is it still valid and then the person will be like yep, yep. still valid they're like okay bumping it forward um so just which i kind of think is fair because then you know the person who reported it is actually still dealing with it instead of just continually bumping everything forward when you don't know if they've been resolved or not. Right. Really kind of depends a lot on the component. Like the you know, kernel gets so many bug reports that it's really not possible to you know, triage and reply to all of them. Um, you know, I know our kernel maintainers actually do read all of the incoming bugs just to try and like the ones that look like they're obvious fixes. But, you know, for a lot of things, you know, Fedora isn't a development project. It's an integration project. And so a lot of times the best thing to do is file a bug with the upstream project. You know, it's like I'm a maintainer of a few packages and by and large, I don't think I could fix almost any bug that people would be likely to report in them. Um, unless, unless it's a bug with the packaging or something where I, you know, forgot to include a dependency or, you know, a file got copied to the wrong place. But, you know, if it's anything in the software itself, the best I can do is turn around and copy and paste that bug report to the upstream tracker. Yeah, which is obviously kind of the, I guess, I don't know if sort of Damocles is the way to say it, but like you're in that position where it's like you can't really do much. And I know that I've seen tickets where it's like somebody will report the bug and then, you know, the person at Fedora will investigate it and they'll be like, okay, this is an issue upstream. So the original ticket filer then goes and files it upstream and upstream's like, no, nah, this isn't our problem. This is Fedora's problem. It's like, well, okay, both of these things can't be true at the same time. Like we need to, we need to figure this out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's hard. And, you know, a lot of Fedora package maintainers are volunteers and a lot of upstream developers are volunteers. And so it's really hard to say, you know, you must do this, you know, and in an ideal world, we'd have a team of people just doing nothing but bug triage and they would be able to, you know, figure out which are actually bugs. A lot of times people open a bug and it's really more of a, I don't know how to do this. Can you please explain it? Um, which is, you know, arguably that's a bug in the documentation, but you know, it's not a bug in the terms of what we think of software bugs. Um, and, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to have somebody who could kind of shepherd it with upstream and like, you know, coordinate directly with upstream because a lot of times users don't necessarily know how to, you know, do the, some of the debugging things that upstream developers might want or need to, to solve the problem. Um, but it turns out like that kind of work is pretty much super boring and unrewarding and nobody really wants to do it. <laughs> Um, and so it's just, it's hard to find volunteers, especially at the scale. We have thousands of bugs in Bugzilla for each Fedora Linux release. And so, you know, it's just, it's super hard, you know, for any one person or even a group of people to do that, be happy doing it and, you know, doing it in a sustainable way. So speaking of volunteers, let's jump back to the documentation point, because this is something I find interesting with open source projects is that there's kind of a dilemma of what do you document and how? Because like, as you said, Fedora is kind of an integration of a whole bunch of other projects. And so the, the breakdown of what Fedora chooses to document has to be kind of interesting because 
like for instance, let's take something like I don't know, iSCSI. iSCSI is you know it's a feature in Linux that every distro has capable. You know, somebody could be like, well, I want a Fedora guide on doing iSCSI and Fedora. But how does the, you know, the community at large, the documentation community within Fedora at large kind of decide, if you can even speak to it, of what are the things to focus on and what are the things that it's like, look, it's, it's, this is just too broad for us on a distro to give you a, a kind of a step-by-step guide. Right. So, you know, we try to focus on things that are sort of specific to Fedora Linux um, or things that are you know, if you're some somewhat of a novice user, here's what you need to to do it, and then you know, point to the upstream documentation for things that are, you know, this is going to be the exact same no matter what distribution you're running. You know, there's not a lot of benefit in that. Maintaining like we used to do a lot of our documentation that was more bookish in form, maybe not in length, but it was, you know, here is the guide for system administration. Here is the guide for installation, things like that. Uh, and that kind of documentation is just super hard to maintain, especially on a volunteer basis. And in a project where you know we're doing a release every six months, and because we're trying to incorporate the latest from the upstreams, there could be significant changes um, without a ton of time to prep for it. Um, so in the last few years, we've really sort of started going towards more, uh, we, doing a lot of in our quick docs, which is like, here, you want to do this thing, you know, it's almost like a you want to, you know, like a recipe, like you want to install Oracle Java. Okay, here's how you do that without a lot of sort of connecting tissue between like the the broader story that, you know, people are trying to accomplish. I don't know that that's necessarily the best approach, um, but it's one that's because things are more bite-sized, it's easier to get contributions and, you know, do maintenance on. Um, but yeah, you know, it's hard because you never know what people want and a lot of times by the time you're in a position to write the documentation you know it too well to really actually be a novice user yeah i have run into that all the time when i've tried to write documentation and then when i've also been looking for documentation is you know when you're writing it there's so much known knowledge that you just assume that somebody else is going to know when you're writing it that you leave out a whole bunch of little details and then when you don't know it and you're going and reading someone else's documentation you're like hold on hold on you went from like step one to step eight. Like, wh- wh- where's the stuff in between, man? Yeah. But then when you do know and you're reading somebody else's documentation, you're like, yes, I know how to open a terminal. Yes, I know how to type CD. Like, come on, give, you know, like there's, there's just no pleasing people, I think is what it is. Like, it's really hard to, you know, because Linux has such a broad audience, you have people who are complete novices people who have been running it since 1991 how do you try and write documentation that addresses all of those and you know even you might be Dealing a super with- expert in one thing and you go over to something else and you're a complete novice again so at the top of every you know documentation guide or whatever there's just a slider and it's like novice to expert and as you slide it steps disappear based on what you should know that would be amazing that would be great but that would be really difficult to actually pull off. Yeah. So if there's anybody listening to this that wants to tackle that project, by all means, go for it. Honestly, I think a lot of open source projects that you know have documentation need a librarian more than they need a doc. You know, like obviously they need docs writers and editors, but that's you know, one of the things you know, when you have documentation that's been around for a long time and it sort of develops organically with multiple contributors. 
eventually it just sort of becomes a, a rat's nest. And, you know, how do you go through and make it so that somebody can just show up and find what they're looking for? You know, the documentation may exist, but if people can't find it, what good does it do? A while ago, when I was doing some work on the Lumina desktop, one of the things that I did, because I was, you know, I was running into problems of, I wanted to make the UI more intuitive, but because I was writing it, it was all intuitive. And I, I just asked one of my friends, I was like, well, can I borrow an hour of your time? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I just sat her down and I'm like, okay, do something, accomplish this task. And then just basically watched her like try to figure out what on earth she was doing and be like, oh, oh, okay. So that wasn't clear. I need to, I need to fix that. Yeah. Or then when I started to like explain, okay, well, you need to go here and you need to do this. And she's like, well, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I do this? Then I'm like, oh, actually, that's a good question. Why wouldn't you have done that? It would, it would be nice if there was a way to easily kind of capture that I know nothing when the people who know this stuff are actually writing it. Right. Yeah. It's like, that was the most painful part of support engineering for me is like being on a screen share with a customer and watching them use the terminal because a lot, you know, a lot of times they were windows admins who had been tasked with here, this one thing needs Linux. You're in charge of it. Now that's really sucks for them. Like that's a terrible position to throw somebody in, but also it's like, no, that's not, no, don't. Ah, <laughs> yeah. It's the old joke of, you know, click on my computer and it's like, well, I can't click on your computer. I can only click on my computer. It's like, no, 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 no. On your computer, there's a button called my computer. Why does your computer have a button on my, it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. <laughs> so as far as change proposals go, uh, in Fedora, these can actually, these are, some of them are actually planned pretty well far out in advance, aren't they? Yeah. Um, by and large, and I'm just going to make up a number, but it's like 85% of change proposals are for the upcoming release that we're either in development on or will be very shortly. Um, every once in a while, people will submit a proposal for, they'll skip one and go, go to the next. Um, and a lot of times that's, you know, the, the Python maintainers have been doing that a lot um, because Python has gone to a very predictable release schedule. And, you know, Python is very important to lots of things in Fedora Linux. Um, and so, you know, getting that, that early awareness as soon as possible and being able to work on it, you know, as soon as release is branched, like, all right, we're going to start this right away. Um, you know, that's really important. Actually, right now, there's a change proposal in the works that's basically, uh, it's not quite a no-op, but it's, you know, very close to being a no-op of, of a multi-stage thing for changes in cryptographic policy that, you know, could have huge impacts and break a lot of applications several releases down the road. So it's like, all right, we're going to put out these change proposals and very, you know, slowly, you know, here's an opt-in, here's a, we're going to break it in rawhide and then revert it. And then finally we're going to do it for real. And so, you know, we're looking at Fedora Linux 40 for doing it or 41 for doing it for real. There are people who do sometimes work very far in advance, um, but that's generally not the case. And if if I'm remembering correctly, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong. But in conversations that I've had with uh, Neil Gampa, there's also some versions that people will kind of target as okay. This is if we're going to make changes, we want to get it in before this because of the rel rebase. Is that correct? Yeah, um, and that's you know primarily a consideration for people who are working at Red Hat and doing it you know as part of their you know rel work. Um, you know when rel eight was launched three years ago. Red Hat committed to, we're going to do major releases every three years. 
Um, and so, you know, that gives rel engineering like, all right, well, we know we're going to release, you know, three, three years from now. So we can backtrack sort of, you know, our internal processes and like, all right, well, this needs to land in Fedora by a certain release. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, I really hope that some of those changes kind of get spread out over a few things just because like, don't want super disruptive releases. Um, although, you know, it's been funny our last two, you know, Fedora Linux 35 and 36 have had less disruptive changes by and large. And those are the two that we've been late on in the last few years. Um, and so sometimes I wonder like maybe being a little more disruptive is good because people will pay a little closer attention to you know, doing earlier testing. So looking at Fedora and then kind of the broader Linux and open source uh, community, are there things that you see being developed or worked on or improved that kind of get you excited for what's coming down the pipeline? I'm really interested in our RPM OS tree variants. So, you know, Fedora Core OS for container workloads, Fedora IoT, um, Silverblue and Kinoite for uh, desktop use cases. Uh, I think, you know, the OS tree model is really interesting from, a, you know, making upgrades simple and making rolling back really simple. Um, you know, take some of the, the scariness out of doing a major upgrade. Um, and, you know, sort of the way things are sandboxed, you know, in terms of like using flat, flat packs or toolbox containers for command line stuff. Um, you know, I think that, you know, is helps make things more secure. Um, you know, really the operating system should be boring and you shouldn't care about the operating system unless you're an operating system developer. Um, and I feel like those, you know, those efforts are things that are kind of getting us in that direction um you know then on the the non-engineering side you know i'm excited about trying to do more to expand the community um you're know, starting to work on sort of a three to five year plan for the community and one of the ideas that's been proposed is like let's double the number of active contributors in three to five years and on the one hand that's really scary because there you know i think there are a lot of things that will fall over infrastructure and process wise as we do that. Um, but it's also a great opportunity to expand our community and really, you know, broaden, you know, who can contribute to the community. Um, one thing I really hope to see, not just in Fedora Linux, but in, you know, open source communities in general is um, an increase in accessibility and making that more of a focus. I think a lot of times, because a lot of open source projects are very focused on, you know, scratching your own itch. They, you know, if you don't have a disability, you don't necessarily consider people who do, and it's not malicious. It's just, you know, I'm doing this thing for me and it happens to be useful to, for other people. Um, but I think if we can be more, more intentional about making our software more accessible, I think that's you know great for humanity. So it's interesting you mentioned about OS tree because that has been something that I have just been fascinated with for quite a while. I remember at uh, Summit for the release of Rail 8 during one of the um, press debriefings, Matt Hicks and Chris Wright were up and they were letting, you know, press ask questions. And so everybody was asking their typical kind of business related questions. And I'm sitting over there in the corner and it got near towards the end and other people weren't raising their hands. So I was just like, yeah, I have a question about OS tree and when it might end up in Rel. 
And like both of them just kind of like looked at each other, brightened right up. And they're like, really? You, you want to know about that? Okay, let's talk. They were like, oh, wow. Yeah, somebody wants to talk about that. Yeah, we love that stuff. The OS for most people should be exciting. But when you are in it, it is actually a really exciting thing. What, what things are happening. Yeah, there's a talk I've given at various meetups that is basically predicated on the idea that operating systems are boring and nobody should care about them. And I think a lot of the ways, you know, the Linux desktop is mostly there at this point. And honestly, part of that is, you know, because of software as a service has sort of taken over, you know, 95% of my job I could do, I could sit down at any computer and most of it's available in a web browser. And, you know, there's some stuff, you know, certain like Python scripts and stuff I need to run, um, which I could you know, do remotely if I had to, but you know, people don't need to care about the operating system, but it's also like, I still remember I bought a new laptop four or five years ago and I put Fedora Linux on it and the Bluetooth worked and the Wi-Fi worked and the audio worked and like everything worked out of the box. And, you know, for somebody who, you know, had been around for a while. Like I remember hand editing Xorg configs and, you know, doing all the terrible things that you had to do to make your hardware work on Linux. It's like, okay, for most hardware these days, you don't have to think about it. And that's awesome. Yeah. For, I would say the majority of cases, like you said, the Linux desktop is pretty much there. The only thing that I still see as a roadblock, and it's not really the fault of anyone on the Linux side, is the NVIDIA GPU issue. Yeah, because that is still like this massive boulder in the way for just it just working out of the box. And if, if you don't have an NVIDIA GPU, nine times out of 10, you can install it on your system and it's going to work unless you have some oddball hardware. But like that is still like the 800 pound gorilla in the room that we need to get with the program. Yeah. So on the accessibility front, that's an interesting one, because my next question was actually going to be, what do you think is something that developers aren't focused on that we should be? And I find accessibility to be one of those really challenging ones because it's not the sort of thing most people ever think about because they've never experienced life with needing it. I mean, they've gone their entire life. Let's say they're 30 years old. They've gone 30 years never needing those kind of tools to help them. Right. But I know someone at NASA who's blind, so he uses screen readers all the time. And up until I had a conversation with him a few years ago, it never really dawned on me, like, I saw it as, oh, yeah, that's a nice utility to have. But for him, it's like, no, no, this is literally the only way I can work. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, that that definitely is an important thing. Yeah. Do you think that there is the focus towards accessibility as gaining steam? It's, it seems that way. Um, you know, I don't know necessarily what the cause is that we've all sort of realized that you know, collectively that, oh, this is an important thing, but I'm, I'm glad to see, you know, that movement in that direction. You know, I think there's obviously still a long way to go and, you know, a lot of it is hard, but I think it's also worthwhile. Yeah. One of the ones that I have talked with a friend about is voice to text on a system. Like right now you can do it with Google's API if you're, you know, you're connected to the cloud, but that's also because of the privacy issue there. Like that seems to be something that like it would be really important for there to be kind of an open source focused, something that can run locally that doesn't need to be hooked into Google. So Google sucking down all their personal data. Right. But yet would enable them to be able to use VTT to actually interact with on their computer if they're 
if they have trouble seeing or, or those type of things. And I know Mozilla is doing some work in that, in that area. But, you know, I'm sure there's even more examples of things that there may be a solution for, but there's not really a good open source solution for. Yeah. And this is one of the areas I think maybe, you know, the biggest challenge in modern computing is, you know, a lot of ways we focus on open source software, but the software isn't necessarily the important part for a lot of these sorts of things, right? Because you need the software, yes, but you also need the data. And that's where, you know, Google has, you know, they have massive amounts of data on everyone. And yeah, that's a concern, but that's also why its search results are, you know, generally pretty good because it's, you know, it knows all this stuff about you. And so, you know, it's like, how do we, how do we get some of that benefit while also preserving privacy? Um, you know, it's a hard question and we're focused so much on the software right now that we forget that, you know, for anything involving machine learning or AI, like the data is really the important part. And you know, how do we, how can we collectively share that in the same way we have software and also, you know, not have Cambridge Analytica and things like that? Yeah, there are huge privacy concerns once you start to get into the concept of open data. And I mean, it really is really important that there is that open data available. I know that, you know, things like cancer research is heavily dependent on the accessibility of the actual data. But you also don't want to have that tied to somebody's personal identity. Because if that ever got out, well, that would be obviously a bad thing. It's definitely something that I think we're going to be struggling with as a society for a while. And it's hard because like, you know, I use Google Maps on my phone and I love the fact that lots of other people are sending their data to Google so I can see, oh, look, there's a traffic slowdown ahead. Let me go around, you know, and like, you know, that's inarguably beneficial. Like you can't say that's not beneficial to people. Is it worth what you're giving up? That's, you know, that's the question. But for most people, they don't think about the deeper, you know, philosophical implications of some of this. And they don't worry about the thing that could possibly go wrong because they see the things that are going right. And, you know, I think trying to educate people on that in a way that isn't, um, you know, shaming them, you know, like, how dare you? pick this proprietary software or use a service that is taking your data. Well, because they saw it did a useful thing and they're doing it. So like, let's, you know, let's help them understand. Let's not bludgeon them with, with this. And, you know, I think there are a lot of organizations in the free software and open source space that have taken a very, how dare you approach and, I don't see how that helps. Yeah, how dare you make your life better? Like that just, it's not going to ride well with right. people. Ben, I believe you are working on a writing thing of some of some form. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been working on program management for open source projects. Uh, it's a book. It's been interesting. Um, you know, a lot of it is basically writing how to do my job with some more generalities thrown in. Uh, but it's been really funny because sometimes you sit there and you write something and you're like, oh, that's actually really good advice. I should start doing that. Um, you know, anyone who's ever written a book will tell you that there's aspirational aspects to it. Um, and so it's kind of cool when you come up with something and you're like, oh. And then like also there have been a few things where like, I'm just going to make this up as a general rule. 
it's like you know on scheduling like you know put the the alpha milestone this far in and the beta this far in and, and then i went back and looked at a bunch of different project schedules like that's actually like it lines up pretty well in terms of like so is that something people have done intentionally and nobody ever wrote down or is it like just sort of naturally that way because that's how it works uh, so yeah you learn all kinds of fun things writing a book yeah and just in general just writing down what you're doing just the other night i was working on a task and i had done it the night before and i had made some notes to myself and i was running into a problem and i just could not figure out why this was not working a day later, I, you know, I pull up my text file and I'm looking at, okay, what did I do? What did I do? And then they're like, here, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you dummy. You did these three steps out of order. That's why it didn't work, <laughs> which the night I was trying it didn't see at all because I had just, you know, I had done all the things. It's not working. But then writing it down and then reading it just a day later, it's like, oh, well, yeah, obviously. I, yeah, that's where I messed up. So many of my blog posts that I've written over the years are really just notes for future Ben. Um, and it's been really, it was really funny. <laughs> uh, trying to figure out a problem with a job scheduler and the HPC clusters one time. And I couldn't figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out. So I went to Google and I asked Google and I found the answer. And then I realized the answer was on a mailing list post that I had made to somebody else like two years ago. I was like, oh, the reason you're seeing this error is because of this. Here's how you fix it. And I had forgotten that. And then you know, I felt like, oh, yes. OK, that's how that's why that's doing that. And you got to pat yourself on the back for giving you the answer. Yeah, like glad I'm glad I put that in somewhere archivable. So to finish this off, for anyone that's listening who is interested in getting involved in open source or interested in getting in, involved in Fedora, what would you say? Well, first, what would you say to them? Like, as far as yeah, come on, let's join. But then, like, are there any points that you would say these are things I wish I had known before I had gotten involved? I would say I, I wish I had known that you can just step up and do stuff. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need to wait and ask for for permission, especially if it's something that nobody is doing. Like if you see a, a gap, jump in and fill it. Um, I think it's important to when you're joining a community that you want you want to lurk for a little bit, kind of learn learn your way around, learn the norms, but. You know, jump in and, you know, submit a pull request. And if it gets rejected, you know, that's okay. But don't sit there and wait for somebody to invite you to do work because people are too busy to to farm out the, the work they need help with, you know, so they're just going to do it. So if you jump in, make mistakes in a way, you know, try and make them in a way that is recoverable. You know, don't, you know, push a huge change directly to the main branch of a repo, you know, do it. You know, do it as a pull request or something, but you know, like jump in and offer ideas, you know, try implementing things, um, ask for help, you know, don't be afraid that, some, you know, because somebody is well known and, you know, well respected in the community, they want to help you too, because everybody's been new to the project at some point. Well, Ben, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's been good catching up again. Yeah. Thanks for being here or no, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> 